Hi, I'm Bruce Tolgan, author of The Art of Being Indispensable at Work, published by Harvard Business Review Press. And this is The Indispensables, a podcast featuring conversations with real go-to people who stand the test of time in the real world of work. Each week, I ask my guests what they do differently that sets them apart in the workplace, what makes them tick, and what makes them so successful. In this episode, I talk with my old friend Amy Spies about how she became a real-life rock star. Welcome to The Indispensables. I'm Bruce Tolgan, and what a joy and a special privilege to welcome Amy Spies. Full disclosure, we went to college together, but get this, Amy is a real-life rock star. Um, so uh, she, she her, her latest album is There Used to Be Horses Here. And um, I mean, like when I say rock star, like she's in Rolling Stone, like when we wake up, we're like, oh, what's the latest feature on Amy Spies and her incredible work? She is one of those people who has been working at her craft for a long time, years and years until she became an overnight success. Uh, So Amy Spies, welcome to The Indispensables. Thanks for having me, Bruce. It's so great to talk to you. What a peculiar year, but this has been a big year for you, right? A big couple of years. Yeah, super surprising. It was the biggest year of my life with my last record, which came out in 2019. I flew over to London to win this big award. My agents, my mom were there, my label, they were all like, this is going to change everything. And that was February 2020. Gee, what is- Came home and my life changed and I became unemployed. And yet, uh, during that crazy period of the pandemic, uh, we keep reading about you everywhere we look because you're so interesting. Your stories are interesting. Your music speaks to people. Your writing speaks to people. Your life story speaks to people. How did you get to where you are? Oh, man. You know, I have to be honest. Like, I went to college and I didn't really have a plan. And I thought that that was a problem. Everybody had a plan. Everybody was either interviewing for jobs or they were applying to graduate schools. And it really started back then. I went, I did two theses, theater and dance. I wrote a play and directed it. And then in English, I did a a, a thesis that was super meta about Billie Holiday and her autobiography and how image is uh, put forth for musicians not that back then that wasn't really their making so that it was this sort of overtly sexualized gardenia in the hair thing that really took advantage of a vulnerable story but i wrote it from the from the perspective of a performer it sounds really heady now that i'm in my 50s i'm like what the hell was i doing uh, for the uninitiated this is like the big experience at amherst college you write your senior thesis you did too yeah. And uh, uh, one was uh, uh, pure art or stage performance, and one was really academic, intellectual uh, perspective on Billie Holiday and the sexualization of her art. Welcome to my world. <laughs> uh, so, 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 and this was, you know, just like 35 years ago. Right. No big deal. But I went to um, my two professors who luckily I'm just still in touch with my two thesis advisors. And I said, I'm going to go get, I mean, I wanted to be a singer my whole life. I wanted to be on stage. I thought it was acting my whole life. And I went to both of them and I said, okay, I'm going for a PhD in literary criticism. And they took me out to lunch, both of them. And they said, we are not signing 
your recommendations. And I was like, what? I'm graduating magna cum laude. How can you not? I've got all these things. And they were like, no, you should just go to New York. We don't know what you should do, but you need to go to New York. Because if you don't, and you don't pursue performance of some kind, you will really regret it because we think that's really where you belong. And God bless them for doing that. Because I literally went to New York. I enrolled at the National Shakespeare Conservatory to get two years of acting training. Because then I was, and then I fell in love with Shakespeare, fell madly in love with acting in Shakespearean plays. And while I was in New York City pursuing a life as an actor and taking every single day job I could, bartending, you know, assisting other people, things like that. I had a boyfriend from Amherst College who was in a rock band and touring around with like Nirvana and people like that. So I was going to all these sort of grunge, grunge rock and roll, late night CBGB's parties. And because I started to, we started to break up. It was a long, slow breakup. And I picked up guitar by watching him. I didn't play guitar, but I played piano since I was three. So it was very musical. And I just kind of learned shape patterns on the guitar. And when we broke up, I was listening. I remember this so clearly. I was like sleeping on a friend's floor because I got kicked out of my apartment. I had bought myself a $300 guitar. I was listening to Tori Amos's record, Little Earthquakes, over and over and over again. And in one week, I wrote 10 songs. They were kind of bad, but they were like my first... It just spilled out of me. And I had been trying to write songs for like 15 years and it just was, it eluded me. But the breakup and the displacement and the feeling like I'm 25 and I don't know what's going on with my life and my friends are in grad school, it created this angst that I translated into lyric that became easy with just chord shapes to start singing melodies over. And you did that. You did that with a guitar that you had, were just learning how to play, not with a piano that you knew how to play already. I had tried to write songs on piano, but because I was trained classically, I think I couldn't get out of the music on the page. But it, it, you know, and a guitar is really portable. And be, I think really the way that I started writing guitar, writing songs on guitar, was an emotional upheaval spurred idea, and then the not knowing of what the chord shapes were released this creativity that I think had always been there. And truthfully, anybody who listens to as much music as I did my whole life, my whole life, Beatles, uh, Joni Mitchell, Bob Dylan, to all the classical rep, to jazz, I had melody somewhere in there. So I sort of just had soaked in all that stuff. So I wrote these 10 songs. I went to an open mic at the bitter end and the guy who booked it said, how many songs have you written? And I was like, I don't know, like 10. And he goes, great, I'm going to give you a shot. And gave me a gig at the bitter end. And I literally was temping at law firms and told everybody that I temped with, all the lawyers, all the secretaries, all the partners, I said, I will buy you drinks if you show up. So I like packed the place. And the guy, Kenny Gorka, who's you know since passed, he gave me a regular gig at the bitter end. The Bitter End is like one of the most storied, it, it's been around since Dylan's time. And it, it's on, um, it's on, oh gosh, I can't remember the name. I think it's on Bleecker Street in the West Village. It was a cover charge of like 5 to $15, depending on the artist, but you had a two drink minimum. So the Bitter End was like a folk acoustic club. And it had in the past, in the 70s, like everybody had played there, Tom Paxton, Bob Dylan, Joni, a young Joni Mitchell. 
And so it, it had that sort of cachet. And so he was, Kenny Gorka discovered Sean Colvin, discovered singer-songwriters, and he saw something in me. And I got to tell you, I don't know what he saw because I listened to those, the tapes of those songs. I'm like, wow, they just weren't very good. But I had stage presence and I had a voice. I barely could play guitar. And I had the, you know, I had the courage to stand up there and pretend like I knew what I was doing. Plus, I think I just, when he gave me the shot, there was something in my heart that said, yes, I, I want to do this more than I want to do anything else. But, 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 but it's sort of like the, the, um, uh, like the Beatles in Hamburg, right? You're putting in your 10,000 hours. Oh, absolutely. And I did. And I took every, well, what happened was there was a sound guy at CBGB's who was also an A&R rep at a little folk label called Shanaki. And he heard me and he said, look, I'm taking you under my wing. And I remember I went to his apartment, which was in Hell's Kitchen, like 57th and 8th. And he said, I want you to play every single song of yours. I'm going to make a tape of it because I want you to listen back to your voice and to how you're playing. And I'll never forget that he told me, you need to work with a metronome to get your rhythm good so that you can play with a drummer and they don't shame you. I mean, I really started logging in my 10,000 hours of practice because I thought there was something in me that said, I want this. I want to do this more than I want to do anything else. So I will take every show that I can be offered in New York City. This guy, Matt McAfee, told me, I wonder if you should start to tour. And I was like, how do you do, how do you tour? So he introduced me to a couple of his friends from Albany and they got me opening slots for them in Albany. So I took a weekend and I did Albany and Saratoga Springs and came back. And I used to do these three day cycles where I would do Thursday, Friday, Saturday, come home, opening for no money for people. I, I, I love this and I want to hear more details because one of the things that tickles me about uh, somebody like you I think people need to know that, hey, good news. It's not just good looks and talent and some, you know, muse who, you know, it's it's good news. It's hard work and that you can do. I learned that from my family and I learned it from Amherst. You know, nothing comes easy. And, you know, I got into Amherst as a public school kid. And then I walked into my dorm room and everybody had gotten into Harvard. And I was like, oh, God, you know, how did I slip in? And so I worked really hard because I thought I was behind. Something about that translated over to the music thing. And I was still working like five jobs and in the back of my head was still law school. You know, well, if this doesn't pan out, I can always go to law school or go get a graduate degree and teach at the university. But I was like, this is fun. I was in the center of a scene that was developing. It was like a third wave of this sort of acoustic music. I was playing a show at a little venue at the time called The Living Room. And the woman had given me a regular spot on Sundays at six o'clock. The first time she gave it to me was a hurricane. And I, again, nobody showed up for the other acts, but I had paid everybody to come, all my friends at the law firm. I kept doing that. And it was me at six. Seven o'clock was a guy named Richard Julian. Eight o'clock was a guy named, um, oh gosh, I can't remember his name, Jesse. And then nine was Nora Jones pre her being signed by the blue note. So this was just, so people were starting, they wanted seats for this young, incredible singer. And Richard was well-known. Jesse was well-known. Nora was an unknown, but the Richard and Jesse were really trying to bump up Nora. And at the time there were lines around the block to get in at six so they could have a seat. 
So I got, re- I mean, it was just a luck thing. Well, that's the kind of luck that, again, you know, you work all day, every day, day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, and then you get this luck. Right. I mean, what is they? what do they say? Luck is opportunity and hard work. So here you are, you're in this scene in uh, in the living room. Uh, you're uh, playing, were you, like, were you hanging around with Nora Jones? Is she your buddy or something? No, not at all. I never got a chance to meet her. And I was an idiot because I didn't want to stick around till nine o'clock. So every once in a while I would stick around, but mostly I would do my show and leave. But it, I was watching these people. I remember David Poe was this incredible songwriter. I think at the time he was signed to Columbia and he was playing the living room. And then on his off nights, he would do sound. And so I, I followed him. There was a, There were like three or four, Ruth Gerson, was this artist I'll never forget. She was incredible. And she was about to be signed by, I think, Epic. And she played the living room. So I would get there on the nights I wasn't playing. And I would just park myself there and watch people. And I would listen to their music. And I was sort of getting a sense of the scene. And it was really hard to kind of, nobody really hung out in bars. Like, it wasn't like you went someplace else. You stayed at the living room. And it's funny, because now I'm in Nashville, Tennessee. And there's a venue here called the Bluebird Cafe, which is a songwriter's cafe. And I've been meeting all these people and writing with these people who had huge hits in the 90s. And they say that's what they did. They would go to the Bluebird every night and they would get the cheap seat at the bar when they first came to town. And they would just listen because you never knew when Garth Brooks was going to show up or Tim McGraw. And to me, the living room was the Lower East Side's equivalent of the Bluebird in the like in the late 90s, early 2000s. So here you are in the late 90s, you're in New York, and what you're doing is you're taking every opportunity to play. You're still working all these side jobs because as hard as you were working at music, it wasn't lucrative enough, right? And then you're also uh, constantly doing your homework, right? You're going there, you're listening, you're watching. I'm sure your mind is, you know, uh, you're, you're both paying attention and also thinking, hmm, what do I learn from this? What do I learn from this? Right. Um, I think this is true of people who are supremely good at what they do. Not that people don't sometimes succeed without doing this, but here you are. So, 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 I mean, and, and, and just to be clear, so now you're like 10 plus years into this, right? Let me think. I started my first record with another artist. We had a little duo called Edith O and we made a record based on this fan just said, we want you to make a rep. We were playing those clubs and uh, somebody gave us five grand and we went to this producer that we knew in Hoboken somehow. And we made a record <clears throat> that was 1998. I think I started playing clubs around 96. So that was two years in. And then that group broke up. And so when I was solo and doing this research, cause the, the, the duo thing, we were both short with short blonde hair and the Indigo Girls had just exploded. We got wined and dined by major labels because they were looking for, to be honest, the straight Indigo Girls. And then Aaron, my partner, got pregnant and just said, yeah, I don't want to do this. And I was like, what? And our friendship kind of dissolved for a while, but we're back. We're so, I love her so much. And she did what she wanted to do and what she what, what she should have done. Meanwhile, I was like, I'm making no money. I don't know if this is working, but I'm going to be the person who goes to these shows with a notebook. I'm going to write down people's set lists to learn how they put together an arc of songs. I'm going to write down the subject matter that they're writing. I'm going to write down what they're wearing. I'm going to write down their banter. 
And that was around 2000. And around then, another guy who was a fan of mine said, why don't you have a record that's a solo record? And I was like, I don't have any money. I'm spending all my money with like the tips I'm getting from the gig at the living room. I'm hiring a drummer or I'm hiring a bass player to play with me. So I took that, that a new fan said, I'll give you another five grand. And I said, great. So my bass player had a studio in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, and I went and made my first record that I sat on because I didn't have enough money to duplicate it. And then I was playing like a BMI, which is one of the, um, there's BMI and ASCAP and they're sort of the holding grounds for the money that comes in from radio play for artists, but they have a wing that goes out and helps emerging artists. And one of those guys was sitting at the living room and heard me and he put me on a showcase and this investor who also is deep into the folk music industry said, why don't you have a record? I said, I've got it. I just haven't duplicated it. And he said, I will pay for it. And so I made copies of this CD and sent it to Time Out New York and the Village Voice. And I started getting really great reviews. So that was 2001. So that's when you, 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 you become a personage uh, in the industry. Is that right? I start to become what they call emerging. The name starts getting around. I got a really good review from the Village Voice. I got a really good review from Time Out New York. Now, if you get a good review from New York City magazines, the rest of the country hears about it. LA hears about it. So all of a sudden, I was... I had a little bit of buzz. I start going to conferences like the CMJ, which is the College Music Journal Conference. That's a three-day industry hang in New York City. I start going to South by Southwest in Texas. I didn't have an invitation to showcase, but I thought I would just go and hang out and see who I meet. And one of those times I went to South by Southwest, I was playing a non-sponsored show at a coffee shop like literally fighting the espresso machine. And this woman approached me and said, I really like what you do. I think my boss would like your music. And I said, oh, she said, do you have a demo? And I was kind of starting to make another record with another producer. So I had five songs and I handed it to her. And about two weeks later, I'm playing at the Sidewalk Cafe in New York City, another small little folk club. And that woman walked into the bar with her boss, who was Judy Collins. And Judy Collins had sent her manager to South by Southwest saying, please find me a young version of me. I'm starting a record label and I want, I need to have other artists. So this woman walked in and Judy Collins came up to me. I was like floored because she's unmistakable. And she said, I love your music and I want to put out your record. It's kind of like having a book that's on, you know, somebody says, as is, I want to put it out. And you're like, what? It doesn't need to be edited. And she said, I love your record. Let's put it out. And can you come on tour with me? And that was 2005. So 2005, Judy, you're at a gig. Judy Collins approaches you and says, I want to put your record out on my label. And I want you to come on tour with me. Let's stop there. That's a good place to stop for a, a break. Um, and we'll be right back with Amy Spees. So, Amy, where we left off, uh, you're going on tour now with Judy Collins. So how did that go? Uh, it was life changing because I had been going to this thing called the Folk Alliance Conference, which was a three day industry hang for all 
you know, emerging and and well-respected and well-known artists in the sort of folk Americana world and all the labels and all the publishing uh, houses and everything. And I went the year before and, you know, couldn't get couldn't get a drink at the bar by these people. They didn't even know who I was. That next year, after Judy Collins had pointed out me and pointed me out and said, yes, I was the I mean, I could feel it. It was like everybody was looking to find me. Like the Newport Folk Festival guy shows up and he's like, oh, my God, you're like the new Joan Baez. So it really changed my life having somebody of that stature say, I'm mentoring this woman. Pay attention. And I, I ended up getting signed to her label, Wildflower Records, which had major label distribution. So all of a sudden I had a record that was not only getting press in the major acoustic publications and around the country, it was going to Europe. It was being distributed all over the world. So I had press in England. I had press in the Netherlands. I had press in Australia. I had radio play. Now, it wasn't like pop radio play and commercial radio play. It was, you know, on XM Sirius, the coffee house or the village, you know, the village. And it was international. But that that opened up a booking agent to me. And a booking agent is, is responsible for getting paid shows. So all of a sudden, I was able to do a tour to California and get like $150, $300 a night. And then they would provide housing. I would probably sleep on someone's, you know, kids, you know, bed with train, uh, with train sheets, but it was, I didn't have to pay for the hotel. And, I, you know, I would go to festivals and I started, I would get like the 11 o'clock in the morning gig in the festival when like John Prime was playing eight o'clock, but I was starting to be seen as Oh, you're in this. Oh, you're part of us. You're coming to the adult table. You might be at the adolescent table, but we're bringing you in. And that was the season of things really starting to snowball. I'm in New York City paying like what, $2,500 a month rent, sharing with two other people, trying to pay off my student loans. So I'm still not making enough money to pay my nuts. So when I'm off the road, I'm temping at law firms as a legal secretary, making like, you know, 30 bucks an hour. And that was paying my bills and the touring was, it was paying a little bit, but it wasn't really covering things. I was still, I would say from 2006, you know, I was still maybe five, six, seven, maybe five years away from being able to quit my day job and really do this. And what's amazing, because here you are living the life of an incipient rock star, and then you go back and have to like, listen to lawyers you know, talk about which I's to dot and which T's to cross. Yeah. I mean, I was no rock star at that point. I had a little bit of a name in a, in like a cult genre, but um, I mean, it might've been a rock star. I mean, I remember when I got my first radio play uh, in Serbia of all places, I was number one in Serbia. That was the best piece of banter to say. I was like, you know, I know where, I know where I sit on the food chain of fame in the United States, but listen, I'm number one in Serbia. There was a humor amongst the tribe of my people that, you know, I started to get to know like the folk stars of the contemporary folk scene, which the most of them lived in Boston. And, and so I started playing with them like Ellis Paul and Lucy Kaplansky and people like that, that might not be widely known, but in my genre, they were stars. And so they, they knew my name and they were kind to me, but my tribe were people that were still trying to kind of find their way. And to be honest, finding a tribe was like everything. Finding other people who were doing this 
and sharing songs late at night, going to folk festivals and staying up till four o'clock in the morning, sitting around a campfire, passing the guitar around. You start getting heard and you start hearing great songs and writing to the next level. You've, you've really truly built like supportive, interconnected, and you call them, uh, you call it a tribe. I, I, I love that. I think that gives it more gravitas and appropriately so, because it's, it's, it's really deep, right? You're really building relationships. You share this craft. It's not just a, hey, what can you do for me? But they're real relationships you're building, um, inter, interdependent support networks. I think I'm actually a social introvert. I think that I thought I was an extrovert, but then I got into the music industry and I was like, I'm not an, you know, I've seen, I've seen Kanye West do his gig. And I'm like, whoa, that is some next level networking. And I, you know, I'm nowhere in his world, but I've watched that level do the, you know, late night walking around selling themselves. Well, I'm still, you know, I'm still a little insecure at this point. So I'm not sure what I have to sell. So what I'm trying to do is make friends. It was, I call it organic networking. When I teach others, I'm like, don't sell your music, sell yourself. And it's not about selling yourself. It's about sharing something with other people so that they understand who you are, why you're doing this. That's when they want to help. They don't want to help because you throw them a CD at a conference. Everybody's throwing them a CD. Don't throw them a CD. In fact, get into a conversation with them at the bar about fly fishing. They will ask you for your CD. And then you've got a friend who knows how to fly fish in Montana. Should you ever want that? And then when you follow up with them, ask them how their kids are. And, you know, it was that that kind of, and that was really instinctual for me to just create a network of people who I liked. So so you mentioned when you teach, you do your own workshops and your own retreats, right? Where you host people. I think networking rubs a lot of people the wrong way, like networking for the sake of networking or somehow that it, it's this very instrumental, sorry for the uh, pun, uh, approach to uh, building relationships. What, what I love about yours, and you said organic, it's authentic. It's, 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 it's more, re, it's, it has the effect of creating um, an interdependent network of people with whom you have authentic relationships and can be mutually supportive. Yeah, you can spot the people that walk into the cocktail room and they're all about themselves and all they want to know is what can you do for me? You can spot those people and some of them make it, you know, you watch them and you're like, yeah, they're going to make it because that sort of confidence translates. And then you watch the people who like, to me, it's like, do you have a good song? Like a great song, you know, and one of my friends who at the time was like a rising star in the, this folk Americana world, her name is Mary Gaucher, and she was nominated for a Grammy last year. She's a big time mentor as well as like sells out venues. And she said to me a long time ago when she first heard me, she said, you know, Amy, you've got a really great voice. If you come off stage and people say, great voice, you have failed. I was like, what do you mean? She goes, you're a songwriter. You want them to hear the song first. If you write a great song, that will move forward. Not your looks or the voice, because there's a million of us. But if you've got a great song that's true, that will put you at the table. And so I started, it's like, that's when I was like, I want to be a great songwriter. I don't care about being a great singer right now. I want to be a great songwriter. So I started, rather than studying the folk world, I was like listening to Guy Clark and Chris Christopherson and John Prine 
And I was listening to great country songs from like the prior eras and, and really going, okay, what's that form? And what are they saying? And why does that song move me? And Lucinda Williams and Patty Griffin and Nancy Griffith. And I started again, like sitting at the table of being a student. And at the same time, my songs got a lot better. And about that time is when Judy Collins actually recorded one of my songs and went and played it at the 50th anniversary of the Newport Folk Festival for tens of thousands of people and introduced the song as one written by this unknown writer named Amy Spies. And the song was called The Weight of the World, which is kind of, it's the story of a soldier who goes to Iraq or Afghanistan and comes home in a box and from the perspective of his sister. And Judy in the press would talk about me and say, this is one of the greatest anti-war songs I've heard since the 60s. And that song really opened the door. It really, like, that was the key through. And it really taught me a great song opens it. It's not, it's not the networking. It's a great song. But, but, but the relationships are still important to you. Yeah, they have. It's like what happens is you get a great song and then the people who are the relationships who have some um, some sway in the music industry, they'll say, oh, God, I'm so glad for her. I've seen her work in her butt off. I'm going to help her any way I can. So there were festival people who had been watching me for years and said, you know what? I'm going to give her a gig on the main stage. Thank God. You know, they're not they're like, she's really nice. Also, she's gotten really good. Yeah, because if somebody gives you a gig because you've built personal rapport with them and then you get on stage, okay, so you got a gig because you had personal rapport with somebody and then you had the gig and then the gig is over. And then they feel like, well, I did that because we had personal rapport or because somehow you've played the politics, right? But if the work comes first, if the work comes first and the relationships are authentic, then they then they intertwine the work and the relationships. Yeah, and they celebrate you. They they want to come out because they they feel like they're your family, and that you're the kid sister who finally got to the adult table. So these people who were bookers and and booking agents and radio guys, you know, that I knew were like, ah, oh. you know, I remember the first time I played a big festival. They were all in the audience, like bring in friends. You got to hear this girl. She, I've known her for ten years. This is, and and it's they're not there to go, to kind of watch you and go. I wonder if you're any good. They're there because they've known you and they know your story. They might have met some of your family. It's a whole different world than the pop industry. In the pop industry, you are um, isolated from audience. In the folk and Americana industry, your audience are your people because they stay with you through your whole career. Whereas the pop, the pop music industry and the rock music industry, it's like, if you don't have a hit, they drop you. In my world, they stay. I've got fans who've been with me since 2005 who will still talk about that song that I sang from the first record. Yeah. And Judy Collins didn't fall in love with you because you're so charming. She fell in love with you because of your work. And then she fell in love with that song and wanted to perform it. And your connection to people who have served in the United States Armed Forces, um, I know you have a connection, uh, your songwriting with soldiers. Where does that come from? Did it start with this song or it couldn't have? I mean, you had to be inspired to write this song. Where does that come from? Um, again, Mary Gaucher, who's become a friend of mine in Nashville. And uh, the, the founder of Songwriting with Soldiers is an, is an Austin artist. His name is Darden Smith. He used to be a major label artist. 
um, he's also a, a writer of books and poetry. He heard about me and I'm sure he heard about that song. And the company is, the organization is they pair, they'll do a retreat of soldiers and their families um, on and off, you know, on duty and, um, and retired who have experienced or are still experiencing PTSD and their wives or their families. And they bring in, they'll bring in like 20 soldiers and they bring in four professional songwriters, mostly songwriters from Nashville who have big hits. But I was invited in and we are paired with the soldiers to sit and just create a song. Now we might create four songs a day and they have a whole video production unit in a and an audio unit. So the minute we write the song, we go into the recording studio, record the song, we get our photos professionally taken, th then we sing the song back to the soldiers. And it trans, I've never seen anything like it. A woman who literally was in the mess line in Afghanistan and a, an ID, um, a bomb came in and she was talking to her friend behind her and her, she watched her friend literally go to pieces. And this was a 28-year-old woman. When she came to our retreat, she looked like she was 60, and she was probably 30. We wrote a song with her. That night, we sang it to her, and she was in tears. Three days later, we do a concert of all of the songs and bring in invited guests, generals from the military, and a lot of the, the money is funded through um, retired generals who are trying to give back to their community. And that woman, the photos that we took of her at the end of that retreat, she's a different person. And so the power of the personal story being translated into art and then offered back to the person who has experienced trauma, it changes them. And I had not yet experienced that except when I'm on stage and I'm singing The Way to the World and a mother of, you know, of someone whose son is in Iraq, or she lost her son or her husband in tears will come up to me and thank me for writing that song. Well, I want to say, I want to say as a human being and as an American, God bless you for doing that work. Thank you for doing that work. Oh man. It's, you know, you don't have to thank me. It, it changed my life. It also changed my mission of songwriting because prior to that relationship with songwriting with soldiers, I was still like, I was still attached to the, like the fame food chain. Like, is the next record going to do well? Am I going to get this? Am I going to get that? Am I going to get that? And then I did my first retreat with songwriting with soldiers and saw the power of art move and change people who need it. And I thought, oh, I don't care. I have let go of my care about my, my press. And I started noticing how songs could really move change. It sounds really um, like pie in the sky, wishy gushy, but you, if you see it, and I've seen painters do this, I've seen other art, I've seen writers do that, where your art absolutely changes someone's life. And that was kind of the impetus for me to give back as a teacher, to use, to, to say yes to every opportunity where I could use what I do and what I've learned for so many years to effectuate change in, uh, in communities and in people. It, it's the most powerful work I've ever done. And I'm really grateful to those guys for inviting me in. It's, it's, it's amazing. And there's a beautiful symmetry to the fact that it also uh, aligns with the first song that Judy Collins uh, recorded of yours. 
you know, it's that kind of thing that is proof to me of, you know, karmaic energy. It's proof to me. Uh, I'm a person of faith. It's proof of God. It's, it's God's work. I, I honestly believe that. And I think that art, art is, art is proof of God to me. Well, yeah, I always talk when people ask me how songwriting goes, I'm very, very spiritual. I'm deaf. I grew up Catholic and I'm probably Buddhist Episcopalian these days, but I really believe that art comes from source, that the first impetus in a writing, any kind of art, is you're channeling something that is beyond your understanding. And then you put it down and it comes through this source. And I remember Elizabeth Gilbert, uh, the writer of Eat, Pray, Love, told the story about how she had this idea for this this story of like this woman who goes off to Brazil and discovers this cure for fertility and allows women to have babies until their seventies, but she didn't write it. Five years later, her friend, Ann Patchett came to her and said, I just finished this book about this woman who went to Brazil and found this. And so Elizabeth Gilbert talks about how ideas just sit out there. And if you don't catch it, somebody else is going to catch it because it's not from us. It's from God. Where we come in is we get it, we put it down, and then the, the, you know, the editor brain shows up and crafts it. So there's art and there's craft, and there's, they're two completely different things. There's editor brain. I love that. And, you know, um, so, so I know you have now this blockbuster album. There used to be horses here. And so here on, on the sort of uh, the latest and greatest of where you are, your song won uh, International Song of the Year by the Americana Music Association, uh, Me and the Ghost of Char- Is it Me and the Ghost of Charlemagne? And so here you are now. I'm going to say, like, technically, technically, and this is just a term of art. You know, if, if, if we, like, turn on the radio and you're being interviewed, if we pick up the paper and you're being interviewed, you are now technically a rock star. <laughs> I don't know if I'd, I don't know if I'd say that. I have a nice career that I'm really grateful for. <laughs> There's two things that we haven't discussed uh, that, that are, uh, one is um, at the age of 50, you had a baby. Can you say a little bit about that? Because not that many people have babies at the age of 50. Yeah, it's like me and Janet Jackson, you know, and now Naomi Campbell uh, ha- is having a baby at 50. Um, my- my first marriage did not survive my touring career, um, and yet we're still good friends. And at 47, I met a man in Nashville who was seven years younger than me. And we got married in, in um, 2016. And after we got married, he was like, you know what? I really want to have a family. I'm like, you married a 47-year-old. You know, Come on. And you know, I went through the whole process of let's just see if this is even possible and not possible. Eggs are not viable. And his day job, um, he was also a musician, a bluegrass player, and going to graduate school for English. He's a short story writer. So, but his day job, which was at Comcast, and I, am, I have to mention that company because they get a bad rap, and I am grateful to them. So at 49, Comcast came through with benefits that would pay for IVF. Now, if you know anything about that kind of world, it's like $50,000 to try to go down the route to have a baby, to get an egg donor. They paid for it. And we were like, well, okay, let's go for it. Thinking it was never going to work. But my doctor said it's the age of the egg, not the age of the uterus. So we decided to go for it. And we, we did two tries. One try didn't work. And I kept thinking, this is karma. It's not going to work. It's not, I'm too old. And at 49 and like 
three quarters, I got pregnant. And so I realized that I was going to be due in March, 2018. And I was turning 50 in February, 2018. And honestly, that whole pregnancy was, I thought I'm going to get pregnant at this age. I'm going to cash in my career. That's it. It's going to be gone. My muse will leave me. I will never write another song. And what happened was the opposite. I think because I was so, I was such a surprise. I was so much older than everybody else. I started a blog because I couldn't find other women my age who were pregnant. And they called a geriatric pregnancy that starts at 35. But if you're 50 and you're pregnant, it's a whole different body than a 35-year-old. So I started this blog that started getting attention because literally I'm the only one out there, it felt like. And I started finding older mothers. So I had my son, Huckleberry, March 2018. But he's a river kid. And he's from the South, which means I can never move north of the Mason-Dixon line with a kid. <laughs> but yeah, I had him and I, I found myself super creative. So I ended up writing enough songs for two records um, in his first year. I made a record. I made Me and the Ghost of Charlemagne when he was in my belly. It was released and I toured it when he was you know, one year old. And then the pandemic hit. I had enough songs for the next record, which is There Used to Be Horses Here recorded that in February and March after the world shut down and then wrote enough songs in, uh, in the summer last year. And I recorded my next record, which is coming out in January in October. And just my, my motherhood has opened the vault and maybe it's because I'm, you know, I'm 53 now and I have a three-year-old, my mortality is closer. So I have that feeling of, I better get it done. And also my father died in that period. He died in 2019. Man, you got a lot going on. It's so much. And and you just don't think about it, especially pancreatic cancer. It's so quick. It's four months, you know, and he's super healthy. And then all of a sudden he's got four months to live. And my dad was like, oh, here's all these things I kind of wish I would have done. And I was like, I better get this done because you never know when it's going to hit you. So I think that opened up the fear of death. And I better write this book. I better write these records. I better get this out there. I want to be the best mom. I'm going to try to do all this. And I'm I'm not saying it's easy. It's impossible. But I have a really good husband who's supportive. I have a really good network. I pick and choose my shows. I love the story that you tell about how your father um, was frustrated that, that you were trying to be a rock star, which I can understand. I mean, I remember telling my parents, I'm not going to be a doctor. I'm going to be a rock star instead. But I was 11. But then you tell this story about how your father had a realization about what you were doing and how he could relate to it differently. Yeah. My dad was a, he started out as a forester and then he went to business school and he was, you know, a businessman, a salesman. And he was, you know, vice president of, of this company. And then when he was let go of that in his fifties, he started his own business. And I think somewhere around the time when he started his own business, <clears throat> I had a really contentious relationship with my dad my whole life. We're both very similar. And I think, you know, he always would introduce me to his friends as like, well, this is Amy, my daughter, who's a musician, but she could have been a champion tennis player had she just put an effort into it. <laughs> so, you know, like, okay, dad, he didn't get it. Nobody in my family is an art artist. And so, you know, I think he kept thinking about like, he was just worried. How am I going to pay my bills? How am I, you know, because there was such a long period of what I call the emerging stage where I wasn't really you know, paying off the student loan. And at some point, 
we were having a conversation about what it is that I do and how I go about doing it. It was like, you know, I do have a booking agent and I do have a record label, but I still have to do all the work. I don't have an accountant. I'm doing my own, my own books. I'm having to chase down gigs and give those connections to my booking agent. I have five people who work for me. I have an assistant. Um, I have to keep track of the royalties. I have to keep track of this. I have to, I have to book the hotel rooms. I have to do all this. And I love it. And my dad was like, oh, my gosh, you're a businesswoman. And I'm like, oh, hell yeah, I'm a businesswoman. And he started to kind of look at me differently. And he gave me the Dale Carnegie book. You know, he gave me all of these books about, you know, the old school business books. And I read them. And then he started sending me titles for songs, you know. And so we became really close. And I'm really grateful for that because it happened right before he got diagnosed with cancer. And I just want to tell you one of the last things he said to me because it so relates to him really understanding me. I was the one who was with him when he passed. And about two days before he passed, he said to me, you know, Amy, I've checked everything off the list and I've said goodbye to everybody that I need to. I'm ready to go. And I thought, man, that's how I want to go. I've checked everything off the list. And he told me that. He didn't tell anybody else that. And I think it's because at the end of his life, of all the people, he really felt akin to me because I was such, my dad came from nothing and worked his butt off. And I think he saw that in my art career. He also had the chance to watch me, to, to meet Judy Collins and to see me play and to hear me on the radio. So he was really proud. But that was a moment that really opened our relationship up. So he, he, he was able to see what you were doing was not, um, a, not a hobby, but it was really, and not even just a calling, but he was able to see it as a business. Yeah, I was making enough money, so he was okay. I had paid off my student loans, so he was pretty good with that. Um, and I had gotten married to somebody that he loved, and I had a family. And he was like, okay, I don't have to worry about this one. I think she's going to be okay. Um, so before we wrap, um, if you were to tell somebody, somebody who's listening to this, and, you know, how do I get to be like Amy Spies? Um, what's your sort of, what's your best advice uh, you sort of like elevator pitch advice for people. Recognize the, uh, recognize the truth of the music world right now, especially there's not that many opportunities. It's a really tight circle. You may not ever make a living off of it, but if you have the calling to be an artist, work, work, work on the art, let go of the result. It's the journey. And if you always have a day job, but you're still an artist, doesn't make you any less of an artist. Third time I've gotten goosebumps in this conversation. Amy Spies, thank you for being a guest on The Indispensables. It is an honor to have you on and a privilege to be your friend. Thank you, Bruce. You too. It's great to talk to you. In next week's episode, Bruce talks with Aaron Gray, the founder and CEO of Aunt Bertha, a public benefit corporation. You won't want to miss his story. If you like this episode, please subscribe and leave us a review. You can also follow us on Twitter at goto underscore podcast. That's at goto underscore podcast. Learn more about GoToism in my new book, The Art of Being Indispensable at Work, available now from Harvard Business Review Press, wherever books are sold. And you can learn more about our work at Rainmaker Thinking, 
by visiting us at RainmakerThinking.com. Until next time, stay strong and stay indispensable.